Welcome all to episode seven of our webcast series. We are very excited to have today Nancy Vilakis uh, with us from Ancram IRBD. Uh, I was personally looking forward to today's webcast as this topic on where fund services and fundraising meet is something that's very important to us here at Four Pines, and it's fantastic to have you with us today. Nancy, can you kick us off just by telling us, telling anyone who doesn't already know who you are uh, about you and, and what Ancram do and what brought you to, uh, to founding the company? Yeah, sure. So I founded Ancrum IRBD in December when a couple of folks in the industry came to me and said, we'd like to work with you and um, launched my placement agency and marketing investor relations consultancy firm at that point. Um, I've worked in funds for 14, 15 years in IRBD, and um, I'm pleased to help clients directly in that way. Um, and I recently did work in fund administration and sales. So I have quite a sense of how fundraising and fund administration intersect. Excellent. Again, we're very excited to have you on and to share with our community your expertise on BD and IR. Um, mm -hmm. In our world, one of the triggers for either partnering with a firm like ours for fund services or upgrading from an existing fund administrator, one like us, is often a fundraising. From your end of the process, why do you think that is? Well, certainly when fundraising, LPs like to see that you're in flow with the fund administrator that's going to facilitate the process upon close if you're a first-time fund. Um, many LPs love to see a fund administrator facilitating checks and balances um, and being sort of the general ledger for the firm. That's a check that came into motion in full swing for private funds post-Madoff. That was always a staple of hedge funds, uh, but it's definitely a cornerstone of uh, requirements for new funds and old these days. Although there are some very large firms out there in the private fund space that don't utilize uh, external fund administrators, but those are certainly fewer over the years because LPs love to see that. And while you're doing your work supporting clients in BD, a CFO is asking him or herself what they need to do to accommodate the new fund and how much time do they have to make adjustments? Adjustments to accommodate the new fund. Um, well, you know, to the extent that they're looking to shepherd in a new service provider, often private funds don't want to necessarily cancel out prior service providers, but maybe transition as they launch new entities to the extent that they're going to choose someone new. You know, I mean, that that process can can be fairly quick, depending on how many different providers you want to interview as you go through the process of choosing a new one. Um, but, you know, the re-up cycle is certainly much quicker these days. In fact, some of the LPs that I talked to can't even facilitate every re-up that's on the plate for this year. Forget about considering new managers. Uh, there has been record fundraising in the private funds industries, we all know. And that's continuing, you know, while the spigot is on. Although, you know, yesterday's 50 bips increase by the Fed certainly may change people's approach to this easy cash environment. There are other indicators in the market as well. But, um, you know, I you know, when when I worked in fund administration, uh, there were various processes. Certainly there were firms that put out an RFP and interviewed 10 different providers, narrowed it down to three or four, and then, you know, had a had a race to choose a new provider in the context of a new fundraise. Others interviewed three and went with their gut as to which one they thought was the best. So it, it varies quite broadly in terms of service provider uh, selection processes. Sure, and we see that from our side as well, especially CFOs that are, are going for a fundraise and just, I mean, what's involved with it from a, a technology standpoint, from a people perspective, what it's gonna take to, uh, for that side. So certainly um, we can certainly relate on that side. And what else do you see? I mean, 
on fund administration come up in the picture in other ways? I mean, people assess uh, service providers and fund administrators uh, on, on many fronts. I mean, certainly many private funds are not the first mover with respect to technology implementation internally. There are definitely exceptions. I would say maybe Blackstone is the most shining exception. Um, but a lot of private funds are looking to their external providers, specifically their fund administrators, to implement technologies that they don't wanna risk implementing internally or that they are unsure of because the tech cycle is so quick, you know, something that's very hot one year might not be within a two to three year cycle and then they would have to implement a new technology. Often enough, they are looking to service providers like Four Pines to automate subscription document processing if that's something that they're interested in seeing. They wanna rely on your expertise Paul, um, to, to pick well and to, to help them roll that out to their LP base. I think some private funds can be exceptionally conservative with respect to this, and they're not even looking at this. There are many innovations on the work slash technology front. We've seen greater implementation through COVID, um, but, but not in all corners. You know, we are, it is a conservative industry, the private funds industry in general. No, absolutely. And you and I were talking about that prior to our call here about technology. I mean, that's one of the big reasons. I mean, I've joined Four Pines, and that's one of our big visions here is really to bring a new approach on the technology front to the fund admin, the PE industry, VC, really because, I mean, we, we think it's just a step back and behind. Um, and that brings us to the next subject of subdocs and what's new there as we're discussing. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly I've seen the whole panoply of subdoc delivery. I mean, a, a frustration to any general councilman or perhaps CFO inside of a firm is, is this sort of back and forth with respect to subdocs, people filling out the wrong section, people not filling out the entire document, you have to kick it back to them. Um, you know, I mean, the, the faxing and the mailing of subdocs is thankfully mostly over, but I think most or many fund managers rely on email for that. Um, while there are amazing technologies out there that point to the right fields for a certain kind of investor, for example, because if you're an endowment versus a high net worth individual, there are different box checks. Um, and, and, you know, every, pretty much every GC I've ever met loves the idea of streamlining this process instead of putting late nights on the shoulders of their IR people, right? Uh, but it, it's, it's not to say that everyone is racing to implement the technologies that are out there. Perhaps some of that falls under the category of cybersecurity worries around new technologies. Although sticking with the manual version doesn't make you safer. But um, again, coming back to that concept of, of, of private funds not always being the first mover, um, certainly not often enough being in sort of Silicon Valley mode where they're waiting for the latest app. Um, you know, people are reticent to, to take on new technology. So once again, finding an external fund administrator that has gone through that process of figuring out how to keep things secure while facilitating smoother processes is, is, is important if you want to implement technology. No, absolutely. And we're seeing that from our side as well, as we've got our own online subdoc solution here that we've got great traction with, but it's also getting users to adapt. I mean, we really tried to make sure that we took it, took an approach that we, we try to automate it from a standpoint from the LP and also the GP, because obviously we know that the work that's involved, as you mentioned, um, just in the back office and what they have to go through, but also as making it as easy and, and 
straightforward as possible for the investors themselves. Yeah, and you were saying, you know, in our in our pre-panel talk or pre-discussion talk that, in fact, a lot of LPs are slow to be interested in new technologies. Sometimes they want to stick with what they know, stick with the knitting, even if it isn't efficient. Um, so, you know, this will be a multi-year process of getting our industry into more of a tech forward mode. Um, sure, sure. But, you know, there are always exceptions and then there are always extreme laggards and there's quite a, a, a broad span there in my experience. Right, and that's what's interesting too. I mean, we were, I was at the, the PEI conference last week and there was a lot of chatter about this online subdoc solution. And then as I mentioned yesterday, we were talking to a large law firm that they really haven't seen the, the buy-in yet from the GP side. So it's interesting just to see that dynamic of getting that out there. There's certainly a lot of talk about it. It's just getting people to, uh, to take the jump. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a friction between, you know, fintech and classic kind of old school private funds in terms of um, interest in, in new technologies, as I pointed out. I mean, you would think that uh, GPs would want to implement such solutions really quickly, take the pressure off of their internal team and possibly their investor base to the extent that there's an ex, you know a, a back and forth that's protracted in terms of executing subdocs um, but you know there's a lot of fear around new technologies and and you know the fintech silicon valley solutions aren't always a perfect fit for what goes on inside of private funds Often enough fund administrators are at the intersection of both and can understand both sides of the coin. Um, so, you know, in choosing a fund administrator, picking one that's right in the sweet spot of how forward you want to be is critical, but also op having optionality, right? Maybe you don't want to implement automated AI subdoc processes right now where all the data is scanned from the subdoc into your CRM. I mean, Certainly, I've seen wonderful solutions like that, and, and that would have saved teams that I worked on an incredible amount of time. Um, but, you know, I think slow and steady wins the race is often the view of the manager. Sure. And actually, in terms of smaller firms and emerging managers, I mean, it can, I'm sure it has to be overwhelming trying to build the operations of larger, more recognized names out there. Yeah, I mean, first-time funds are often, you, you know, harshly judged on the fact that they, by, by the fact that they don't have that internal infrastructure that a larger fund would or should. Um, but they can also be a little more nimble in terms of what they're willing to, to do in order to facilitate these processes, often being shorthanded. Um, and to the extent that they're in the venture space, they're already inclined toward shall we say, disruptive technologies and modes. And so they might be a little bit easier in terms of you know, their, their inclination toward implementing these, these, easy, these, these work modes that are there and gosh, would save people time. But there's a real seesaw in this discussion, obviously. So. No, absolutely. And we're seeing that too, just from the emerging manager side. I mean, we're getting a lot of, of traction from them just because there's so much involved in setting up a new, a new fund. And just from, I mean, we've got the resources here and having prior, previous CFOs that are our founders here. And so they've got that experience and knowledge to really help these emerging managers as well. I mean, as I said, there's just so much involved to start up and having that, utilizing an admin as a resource, I think is really incredibly important for us um, and for the firm. So it's great. Yeah, le yeah, leveraging the knowledge of a tech forward admin. I'm sure that there are clients that uh, you have that don't want to implement AI related or automated processing for subdocs, but at least it's there for them if they if they choose to later on. 
um, and the fact that your firm is in flow on what what that could look like in the future and you know certainly quite knowledgeable about what that looked like in the past is useful to a fund manager that maybe needs to focus on the markets a a time like this you know when there's so much volatility in the equity markets on the tech side in particular um you know when your utilities etf is shooting through the roof you know we've changed regimes in terms of uh what's going on in the investment world (laughs) absolutely so I wanted to switch gears a little bit. I know you were recently at the InvestOps conference and just wanted to see if you can share a little bit of what you heard and, and what you thought was interesting. Um, were there particular speakers you thought made important points and, and what should we watch as the year continues to unfold? Yeah, sure. I mean, so Lou Rosado of BlackRock was was quite an interesting speaker at the recent InvestOps conference. He was talking about this move back to the office. Certainly our industry likes FaceTime. You know, when you're working inside of a fund or on a trading floor or even on an M&A floor, you know, the classic version of, of what works, work looks like is, you know, you're there at 9 a.m., you're not there at 9.03, you're not there at 9.20, you know, it's 9 a.m., right. right? If you've got a subway challenge, you better bake that into the time spent getting into the office. Um, so as you can imagine, and as I'm sure you know directly, um, you know, a lot of classic fund managers were the first people to bring folks back into the office at the end of last year. And in fact, they want a five-day work week that looks very much like what we had pre-COVID. And the reality, though, is that there is a talent war going on. And a lot of companies don't want to lose their most valuable player to something like, you know, a flexible work schedule argument. In fact, three days in the office, two days out seems to be the standard right now at classic asset management firms. Every CEO pretty much seems to want to bring that back to the five-day work week where everything is inside of the firm. For team building, mostly, you know, one person, um, Evan Fire of Pisenia said, actually, people are, are more efficient from home. They don't have the commute time. If they have to do something personal quickly and come back to the desk, uh, it's easier for them to do so. They don't have to leave the office and come back. Uh, We're actually, he said, you know, we're actually getting more work hours out of people. And because of the uncertainty in the world in general, people are inclined to work harder and to do better and to make a better showing of it. So he said the concerns and the problems that he has seen through um, through the course of lockdown, through COVID and remote work regime establishing itself, is actually, it doesn't have to do with efficiency. Our business is full of type A++ personalities like me and you. Um, you know, people are not dropping the ball or, you know, often, often enough, they're, they're working harder, they're trying harder. But, with, but, but it is kind of a, an apprenticeship business. If you're a young trader on the floor, you're going to learn more from somebody if you're next to them. You know, if you are a young gun on the private equity deal side, seeing someone operate in, you know, those those little casual conversations that occur where education is being passed down about how things are done um, are harder to facilitate through Zoom. And so it's actually more about the cohesive culture discussion that that really people are inclined toward there are many other dynamics beyond that as we know and they've been thoroughly uh communicated through the formal and informal press i mean 
I think flexibility can be a wonderful thing, but then again, we've all been on a Zoom call where, you know, the kid runs into the room and starts, you know, waving a rattle and every, you know, no, everybody, and we're all so flexible with that and understanding at this point, but uh, with, you know, often enough, it's working mothers that I meet that want to go back to the office and have a separation of church and state. Um, I've heard that many times since lockdown. Um, but I, but I think though, also people have enjoyed their families and, and certain aspects of, of lifestyle that they were unable to when, you know, in some cases, two or more hours are being soaked up by a commute. Um, the thing about commuting that's wonderful though, is that it kind of bookends your work day. You might log in at 10 or 11 after dinner and do a couple of things. Um, but I think, you know, our, our business is largely an in-person business. So a lot of the sentiments that were shared by both Pizenia and BlackRock during that first panel um, that I facilitated were, were geared toward this dynamic around remote versus classic work styles. Sure, and, and that's, that was another topic that came up a lot at the networking events last week at the PEI conference as well, is what, what's this new normal going to be? Is it going to be a high yeah. Because everyone's asking everyone for advice or what they're doing and, and just to get some ideas. Because you're right, I mean, there really isn't much of a stop time now. I mean, people find themselves working all hours. Because like you said, the bookends with the commute, you have your, your start and end time. Really, there's, I mean, during, that, the, during COVID, there was really no stop time. People were on, it seems, all the time. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Okay. In, in, in an industry where people kind of are anyway, you know, right. it's even it's even been more so. And then when the markets become challenging in one way, shape or form, um, you know, people are even more intent on understanding new dynamics and what they mean for their investment strategy and the like. And so, you know, and, and the 24 hour work cycle uh, compounded by social hyper social media engagement, I guess, um, has, has made for no downtime for many people, even though they're remote. So you will see how, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's too early to say what the new regime is going to look like and every industry is different. But if you're competing for talent and if you're competing for young talent that expects to have the optionality of remote work, you know, there could be a paradigm shift that's here to stay, but I, I, I have a wait and see attitude. I certainly have no crystal ball. Sure. And I just wanted to switch just gears here a little bit on the discussion. Can we come back to some of the themes we discussed earlier? What about in real estate? Are some of the middle and back office dynamics and BD dynamics you discussed earlier different in real estate or have particular wrinkles? Well, real estate isn't my specialty with respect to fundraising per se. Um, uh, but, you know, having l listened to some of the Milken talks, uh, so there's certainly some prominent real estate folks on those talks this week. Um, uh, I would say that there's quite an interesting dynamic around interest rates and mortgage rates rising now. And um, the dynamics around business centers and how they maintain community and in fact, maintain safety, right? In communities. Yeah. Um, and then also kind of the non-utilization of central office spaces in general over the last couple of years. Although again, many of the people in our industry that I speak to are there for three days a week. There's flex for two. Some people are fully remote. It depends on the culture of the firm. Um, but yeah, um, does that answer your question or can I, can I No, that's great. Expand? And mm -hmm. as we continue to look at different flavors and trends in private equity right now, I wanted to ask you if you have opinions or insights regarding the likes of Vanguard and others becoming more involved in private equity. Is that changing your business or the business of your clients in important ways that our audience should consider? 
Well, I mean, with respect to the institutional LPs that I chat with most frequently, I mean, most of them do have a passive vanguard strategy uh, uh, implemented of some kind or some kind of passive exposure. I mean, vanguard moving into private equity. I mean, th- I don't want to say that's oil and water. I, you know, I I wouldn't say that I have a specific view around vanguard moving into private equity, but. <sighs> You know, they're known for this passive exposure and for doing it well. Um, private equity is a hands-on, roll up your sleeves, get in there and re-strategize, rebuild the company, hopefully sell it later. That's certainly been easier when when rates were very, very low, cash was cheap. You could, in some cases, buy the company, sit on it and not do anything wrong and then sell it for more because there's such a, such a, a, a hunger up market to buy lower middle market companies. Um, but, you know, I, I think let's see, right? I mean, I've been on panels and in discussions recently where, where private equity firms are talking about how their entire play is toward retail. So it's almost as though Vanguard is meeting in the middle and private equity is going more toward retail and trying to roll out product across wealth management platforms. I mean, in my own case, my financial advisor comes to me with private equity product that is very much in a fund of fund structure, you know, and I'm going to be paying, you know, an excise fee to have exposure to the manager and then another layer on top because they're managing a fund of fund style vehicle. And for me, I, I don't want to pay that. Um, but, you know, if you could give me uh, an excise return, that's great. But I think with pressure on valuations, we'll see what these longer dated funds deliver in the end in terms of their target return on the IRR front. No, that's great. And, and I, mean, I know we're running short on time here. We'll get the questions in a couple seconds, but um, just another, okay. I think another trend in PE, and it's not new, but we've mentioned it before, is really the, the, the funds focus on enterprise technology. We've been talking a lot about automation and software today, eating mm-hmm. fund administration, as they say, but have you noted PE firms that have a focus on enterprise technology and SaaS investing thinking about their operation and work like yearly? I mean, you know, there are PE firms that focus on that specifically and that's their strategy, you know, sector talent and focus and interest, right? That's their that's their primary um, investment strategy. And, you know, I think that it can be a tale of two cities. It can be kind of, we're very much into the new thing and that's our focus and we're going to run with that. Or it can be, you know, let's let's stick it out with the old version, and our strategy really doesn't underline te- technology so much. But certainly, there are firms that are not so tech forward that do implement technologies at the portco level that can maintain efficiencies in, in that in you know with respect to the the topic at hand. But um, I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't say I have explicit expertise in um, companies that are focused on fintech implementation across the work world, if you will. I mean, I am working with a fintech lender platform that rolled out an asset management division. And the fintech lender that implemented that asset management division is a $12 billion online lender. The asset management division um, has access to all the loans there and can pick the best ones to facilitate bigger lines for uh, companies that are revenue generating and generating more revenue every quarter uh, versus kind of the stereotypical non-cash flowing great idea where people are starting to get laid off. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but beyond that, I, I wouldn't say that my 
fund client base uh, is is focused on that strategy explicitly. So I don't want to sure. pretend to be an expert there. No, we hear a lot about, especially on the on the, the Porco side of trying to streamline that technology to the GP itself, just because there's so much. Sometimes there's differences there, and so that's certainly something we hear too from the the Porco side of just streamlining yeah. technology. Yeah. Um, but finally, I mean, I know we've talked a lot about private equity in this conversation. Do you have any particular thoughts on how any of this is different and how you think about it when it comes to um, VCs? I mean, in my experience, VCs are much faster, as, as mentioned earlier, um, VCs are much faster to adapt new work modes. In fact, it is the tale of two cities, in my view. You know, many venture firms are looking not only toward innovations that seem feasible right now, but sort of the glossy space age work environment of the future. Um, Bloomberg beta, you know, is excessively focused on that. Um, but it, you know, I, if, for all the kind of exposure I have, I would say that people really are in one camp or another. There are people that are saying, well, this technology is coming, so you might as well implement it because this is where it's going and you can be as much of a laggard as you want to be, um, but you're going to have to catch up soon enough. I think most people, and then there are people that are, you know, really very sleek and, and, and right on top of the latest technology. Most people are in the middle. I think folks want to know what's out there. They don't want to implement quickly, necessarily, as we discussed pre-panel. Sure. Um, but they, they, they want to know what's out there so that they can strategically choose. But if they have a fund administrator like Four Pines that is scouring the universe of new technologies, implementing when it makes sense, providing optionality to their fund clients, uh, that's better because that provides them with a window into something that maybe their day-to-day -day, uh, investment focus um, takes them away from. So they outsource that choice and, and uh, that technology implement, implementation and optionality to you, frankly. Oh, this has been this has gone by way too fast. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Nancy. I mean, it's been enormously informative and helpful for thinking about the year we're entering now. Uh, we're going to check just quickly here for a couple of questions from the audience okay. and wrap it up. Great, thank so, you. We have a question here on the point you made about being an apprenticeship business. Um, have you seen in the world of BD best practices, if any, of mentorship in a virtual world? Well, BD, BD in a virtual world, that's interesting. Um, I have a couple of interns and they've learned quite a lot from me, I would say, um, through virtual engagement, sometimes because I'm sending them resources that up their game and help them uh, learn more. I mean, I think you can always get on the Zoom call with someone and have a, a discussion uh, that enables them to learn more about the background of what's going on with on the investment side. But, you know, classically sitting on a trading desk, watching the big gun do it is something you can't entirely implement through Zoom unless you're sitting there with someone on Zoom all day long. Sure. And, and then even then it's you in your home office and them in theirs and you don't have the whole beehive um, of activity around you. You know, when rates when rates rise and you're on a trading floor, you get all kinds of unsolicited opinions about what that means for the book and the economy right. and all that uh, beyond what the what the sort of ticker or, you know, the 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 news feed conveys. And so I right. learned so much from from being in those places uh, that I couldn't have replicated through a Zoom environment, even if someone decided they wanted to sit with me all day, which 
Actually, I think sitting with someone all day through Zoom could be kind of annoying. But <laughs> I know. I think we all. I think everybody got tired of Zoom being on a twenty-four-seven. Yeah, I agree. But again, that's um, that's the only question we had. So thank you so much, Nancy, again for your time. It was a pleasure uh, spending time with you, and, and looking forward to uh, seeing you at some of these events in the near future and, and meeting in person soon. Okay, great, Paul. Thanks for having me. Thanks to the Ford Finance team, um, Chris Gale, and uh, everyone. Have a great day.